You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. What do you do with your emotions? For many of us, we've been taught two different primary responses to dealing with emotions when they rise up in us. These responses make up kind of two ends of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, we're taught to stuff our emotions, to deny them. So a particularly stressful situation will come up and you'll be feeling things and you just are taught to power through, right? Don't evaluate your feelings, don't think about them, just keep moving. This was how I was taught growing up. Uh, My family very much was about moving through emotion and not really addressing it very much. But then there's another end of the spectrum. Many of us have been taught to put our emotions in the driver's seat. Rather than in the back seat and telling them to keep quiet, we are driven by our emotion. So we encounter a stressful situation and it all just gets thrown out there. I had friends and families growing up who this was the way that they dealt with emotion and their dinner tables were much louder than my dinner tables. A lot more laughing, a lot more crying, a lot more emotion just on the table for everyone to see. But what's interesting is that both of these responses to emotion, they're actually doing the same thing in different ways. Both these responses are allowing our emotions to define our lives. So when you stuff emotion, what you eventually become is someone who doesn't know really how to articulate what you're feeling when you're feeling it, and it becomes a poison in the well of your heart. Eventually, you become bitter or resentful because you've never been able to express your emotion rightly. You become the bitter old man or woman on the rocking chair. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you're driven by your emotions, then that means how you feel in a given moment will always define your life. Whether you're sad, whether you're happy, you'll be defined by what you feel in a given moment if you're driven by your emotions. Any time that we let our emotions overtake us or if we become people who envision a life dictated by our emotions, if we stuff them or if we're overwhelmed by them, we'll always be defined by our feelings. And most of our world lives that way. Most of our world is defined by anxiety. The anxiety they feel about work or school or relationship or purpose. They're defined by anger or resentment against enemies or family members or people who have harmed them. They're defined by sadness, sadness over the broken world, sadness over what's going on around us, or the ways that people have harmed them or they've harmed others. But the Bible, interestingly, teaches us a different approach than stuffing emotion or being driven by emotion. The Bible gives a primary part to emotion in our lives, but it doesn't teach us to stuff, and it doesn't teach us to put it in the driver's seat. It teaches us instead to pray through emotion. And that sort of prayer, it's not sentimental or cliche. It's an authentic and intentional reflection on the sources of our emotions. What experiences, what things have brought this up in me? And how do I learn to walk through it well? And Jesus, the person we believe lived the most full and free human life that's ever been lived, he exemplified this for us in every part of his life. Prayer was the center point of his life with God. You can't read the gospel biographies without seeing how central prayer was for Jesus. He prayed through all of his emotions and all of his experiences. He didn't stuff them, and he didn't put them in the driver's seat. For instance, on the day of Jesus' baptism, which would have been a day of overwhelming gratitude and affirmation, a day of great joy for him, he prayed. Luke says that now when all people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And then, early on in his ministry, when crowds were pressing in on Jesus to heal them and teach them, the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus would slip away to deserted places and pray. In other words, when work anxieties were pressing in on him, when work stress was pressing in on him, he 
he prayed. When his good friend, Simon Peter, was being tempted to wrongly abuse power, it grieved Jesus deeply, and in that grief, he prayed. Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And then on the final evening, with his closest friends, in deep intimacy and love, he prayed and broke bread with them. And just a few hours later, when his emotions changed, when all of a sudden he was overcome with pain, with agony over what he was about to endure, he prayed. He went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then, the day he died, experiencing a myriad of emotions, he prayed through every one of them. In the midst of deep loneliness, he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of deep compassion, he pleaded, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And then in the midst of deep exhaustion, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For Jesus, prayer was not an obligation to check off some religious to-do list. It was the essential way that he connected and related to the source of life and love. And he did that in all of the emotions and anxieties of his life. Pain and joy and loss and gain and heavy and light. All of it was experienced and entered into through prayer. And that practice ultimately shaped him into the person that he was born to be. Now fast forward to our lives in the 21st century, those of us that would call ourselves Jesus followers. Prayer isn't often experienced this way. If we took a poll of Midtown Presbyterian Church and asked everyone here what their experience of prayer is, how many of us would say, you know, my prayer life slaps, as Gen Z likes to say, right? I am killing it in my prayer life. When I wake up every morning, my head pops off the pillow, and I just can't wait to pray. Not many of us speak that way about prayer, right? Because for many of us, prayer feels boring or unproductive, And that's especially true when 90% of us have a smartphone within reach. That number might actually be higher. I looked that number up this week. I was like, is that it? I feel like there's more. Or when we have work to do or kids to take care of or when the final season of Ted Lasso has been released and you need to binge it, obviously. For many of us, our lives are either too distracted or hurried to meaningfully engage in prayer at all. And that's because we live in a culture where every square inch of our lives is being fought for. There's a tech executive named Justin Rosenstein who talked about this in a interview with The Guardian recently. Justin was the guy who invented the like button on social media. Started at Facebook, but now it's been adopted everywhere, right? The like button, a fundamental part of social media. And now he and other executives in his industry are critiquing what they have started to create. They call the social media world that we live in an arms race for our attention. That's militaristic language. And Justin calls likes bright dings of pseudo-pleasure, and he also compares Snapchat to heroin. That's a drug. (laughs) That's right. Right now, in this room, huge multinational companies are listening to our conversations through our phones, and then they're spending billions of dollars with two goals in mind, to distract us and addict us. Turn off your phone every once in a while, by the way. There's an author named Ronald Rawheiser who puts it this way in his book, The Holy Longing. He says, we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God or depth or spirit. We'd like these. It's just that we're too habitually preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church or prayer. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. 
And Rawheiser's right, for sure. But there's another truth we need to remember about our busyness. See, we might be busy people, but we're not too busy to overlook the things that we really care about. Question in this room. Any of you guys eat food? Yeah? If you didn't nod your head, you're lying. And I'm really interested in how you're making it day to day if you're not eating food. All of us find time to eat food. You guys sleep? I hope so. You find time maybe to work out or exercise? Most of us do. We keep our body in shape. So we're not too busy to do the things that are most important to us. There's another reason that busyness and distraction exist in our lives. It's not just that those things are preventing us from prayer. They actually are preventing us from deeper examination of our hearts. Many of us don't pray because of what prayer uncovers in us. Here's what I mean. When we finally enter into the quiet and silence of prayer, there is now no longer anything standing between me and the inner chaos of my life. Nothing standing in the way. And that's terrifying. How many times have you entered into silence and prayer and all of a sudden everything arises up in you? It's a lot. It can be intimidating and overwhelming. The practice of addressing those things and bringing it before God is something that we don't really want to do. So if prayer is a mirror to the souls, we'd rather just scroll a lot of the time. And then, well, even if we overcome these hurdles, distraction and the uncovering of our souls, when we get to prayer, it often just feels awkward for us. We don't really know what to say or how to say it. We've heard some religious professional up front give us a prayer, and so we borrow some language, but it seems to always fall flat. And eventually, those hurdles just can cause us to give up on prayer altogether. We end up saying something like, well, I prayed and it didn't work. I prayed and it didn't give me the feeling I was hoping for, and so we conclude that God must not be listening and we give up on prayer. Or we often hedge our bets in prayer. You ever done that? You just pray really ambiguously for things because you don't want to be let down. Right? You just build these walls around prayer and insulate yourself from the painful emotion of potentially being let down by your prayer. And whenever we do this, you guys, we're either accidentally or intentionally treating prayer like it's a vending machine. That's what's happening. We've put our money in, our words, our posture, We punch the right numbers, and we expect that God will give us the flaming hot Cheetos that we ordered. And if he doesn't, well, then we give up. But here's the truth, you guys. These hurdles to prayer, they're not the fault of prayer itself. They actually arise from our misunderstanding of what prayer is. And that's often a misunderstanding that we've been handed or that has been shaped by our experiences. Our prayer lives become distracted or shallow or awkward or lifeless because our idea of prayer is too small. See, prayer isn't just some vending machine we use. Prayer is simply talking with God. And notice I use the word with. This isn't just about talking to. It implies interaction, listening and speaking through the whole of all that we experience. And what we've done is we've reduced that relationship down to a transaction in our lives. That's why prayer feels empty or shallow. An example that illustrates what I mean. I love my wife, Emily, who I live with, by the way, also something that we want to make clear. She lives in my house as well, and I live in her house. I love my wife. My wife loves me. And because we love each other, we talk and listen to one another all the time. We talk and listen about what happened in our days, even though oftentimes, because we share a calendar, we already know what happened in our days. We talk about how we're feeling, even when, oftentimes, especially over the course of our marriage, we can kind of know what the other's feeling before they say it. And sometimes we ask each other for things. And sometimes we say yes, and sometimes we say no. We set specific times in the week where we go to our favorite restaurant or dessert spot to literally sit and talk. That's it. That's what a date night is. 
You guys, I talk so much to my wife that I'm not joking. I have lulled her to sleep with my talking. <laughs> yeah, beautiful, adorable. It didn't feel like that to me <laughs> when it happened. But sweet and adorable, yeah. And the truth is, we don't just talk to one another. Sometimes we just sit in silence. Sometimes we laugh or cry together. Sometimes we just play and have fun together. We walk our dog or see a movie. Because that's what relationship looks like. It means emphasizing practices or habits that get us close to another person. Now imagine, if my relationship with Emily consisted only ever of me asking her to do things for me. Imagine, if I stopped talking with Emily when she refused to give me what I wanted. What if I never listened to Emily at all and only ever talked? Those would all be signs of a bad relationship and a lifeless marriage. And they're signs of lifeless prayer. Our picture of prayer is too small, which begs the question, how can we grow in our understanding of prayer? How can we, as 21st century followers of Jesus, experience, as Jesus did, a full and free human life that is shot through in all experiences and emotions by prayer? And as it turns out, that's not a new question. In fact, the scriptures uh, have an entire book devoted to teaching us how to pray, teaching us what interactive life with God looks like. It's called the Psalms. It's a collection of 150 poems and prayers that have shaped the followers of God for millennia, multiple thousands of years. There's a theologian named John Calvin who called them an anatomy of the soul. Because in the Psalms, we find all of our griefs and sorrows and fears and doubts and hopes and cares and confusions. It is a messy book. Open this thing up and you will see things that you didn't know you were allowed to pray. The psalmist pray them. The Psalms teach us to pray in and through all things in our lives. So over the next seven weeks here at Midtown, during our Sunday gatherings, we're going to be looking at a different psalm each week and a way that that psalm teaches us how to pray in our own lives. We're calling this series something really groundbreaking. We're calling it Psalms. Uh, so I knew you'd like the title. Really, really original and, uh, no, but learning the language of prayer through the Psalms. That's what we're going to be doing. And then we've also created a resource. I know a few of you have already grabbed it. Uh, this resource is something, if you missed it, by the way, you can grab it on the way out. This resource is something that we're going to be using throughout our weeks as well. So we gather together, learn about a prayer practice here, and then every one of us, twice a day, for 15 minutes a day, morning and evening, is going to implement this prayer practice. You're actually going to see what this does to your interactive life with God. And our hope is, over the next seven weeks, that this shapes us profoundly. With me? All right. So this week, our first prayer practice, it comes from Psalm 20. It's the practice of intercession. So if you have a Bible, open it with me to Psalm 20. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The word's going to be up here on the screen behind me, so you can follow along there. Psalm 20. We're going to be reading the whole thing. To the leader, a Psalm of David. The Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary, and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your victory and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know the Lord will help his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories by his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we shall rise and stand upright. 
Give victory to the king, O Lord. Answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As the leader goes, so goes the culture. As the leader goes, so goes the culture. There's an author and critical, uh, a cultural critic named Simon Sinek who recently penned those words, and history backs him up. The ultimate destiny of culture and people is always bound up with the success of the one who's been invested with power in that culture and people. And Psalm 20 echoes that truth in a resounding way. Scholars have actually termed this psalm a royal liturgy because it's directed to the king or talking about the king. It's not directed to the king, it's directed to God. The people of ancient Israel would gather together in the temple and they would intercede for their leader by praying or saying these words together. And that word, intercede or intercession, it's not one you use very often in your life. It's not something that you talk about around the dinner table much. But it's actually a central part of the scriptural understanding of what prayer is and how we ought to pray. Put simply, to intercede is to pray on behalf of others for their needs or well-being. To intercede is to pray on behalf of others for their needs or well-being. It's the intentional focus of our human will and effort to prioritize the peace and life of our neighbors. There's a great uh, scholar and minister named Richard Foster who puts it this way. He says, if we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them. And that will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. It's selfless prayer, even self-giving prayer. In the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, nothing, he says, is more important than intercession. And for many of us, that makes a lot of sense in theory, But then in practice, it gets challenging. Because we get to prayer and we're like, man, there's so many things to pray for. What do I mean, God solve world hunger and stop all wars and that kind of covers it. And we just move on, right? Just very ambiguous, broad things. There's so much to pray for. Or the flip side, sometimes we pray for very specific things and then those things don't actually happen. It's happened to me. I've prayed for dozens of people who have had cancer and they've lost their battles. So making sense of intercession, implementing this, is not an easy thing. And that's where Psalm 20 can help us. This short prayer teaches us what intercession is and what it isn't, and then helps guide us in our own practice. It teaches us that intercession is, first, an orientation, not a formula. Second, it is God-trusting, not just human-trusting. And third, it is a difference-maker, not just sentimentality. Orientation, not formula. God-trusting, not human-trusting. Difference-maker, not just sentimentality. First, orientation, not a formula. This prayer of intercession explicitly emphasizes the importance of uh, the king's success. The last line says, Give victory to the king, O Lord. Now, in this culture, the king was not some stuffy old man in a crown, like we often think, that's distant from the people. The king was actually the military leader and defender of the people. So they were on the front lines of the people. Their activity and decisions had immediate influence on their entire culture. In other words, the health and well-being of every Israelite was wrapped up in the way and work and health of the leader. As a leader goes, so goes the culture. So to pray for the king, to pray for the leader in that culture, was by extension to pray for the good of all the people. That's what's happening here. To pray for the leader has in mind everyone that the leader influences. That's why here you get a lot of communal language. It says, we shall rise and stand upright because of the king's success. The prayer for the leader is prayer for the sake of the ones they lead. That's the foundation of this psalm, and that's what intercession looks like. It always begins 
by bearing on our hearts and minds the burdens of those around us. So when we find ourselves frustrated by injustice, when we're grieved or angered by the suffering of our neighbors, when we're all too aware of the loneliness and pain that others are going through, those emotions are what spark intercession. We learn to pray through those emotions. We allow our hearts to be broken for what breaks God's heart, and that is what leads us to prayer. We start towards healing by praying. There's a great theologian named Karl Barth who talks about this. He says, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Does that not get you hyped or what? (laughs) And so when we become people who pray like this consistently, it starts to do something in us, radical. See, we live in a world that constantly pushes and shoves to get its own way. We've all been trained in this room and taught that true life, true flourishing for us as humans comes from self-determination. Pursue and get what you desire and cast off anything that might prevent you from that pursuit. BK, have it your way. We all know the ads. Our hearts are, as Augustine would put it, incurvatus and say. That means curved inward on themselves. But intercession, praying for the well-being of our neighbors, it unworks that posture because it starts by turning us outward to our neighbors in the most intimate parts of our hearts and lives. You guys, when we hold up the life of another person before God, when we pray for their inner health or strength to throw off a bad habit or restoration of a relationship, only when we pray in that way do we really sense what it means to share in God's love and concern for the world. And only then can we see the walls that separate us in our world go down because we begin to sense that we are truly knit together into God's family with our neighbors. Which means intercession is oftentimes as much about the one praying as the one being prayed for. It's shaping us as much as it's shaping the world. And to be clear, God does answer prayers of intercession in powerful ways. We're going to get to that in a sec. But remember, prayer isn't just a formula that you throw up to make God do good things. It's not a vending machine. It's interactive life with God. And sometimes, that interactive life is primarily about reorienting the person praying. Sometimes, God is actually prompting us to become answers to the things we're praying for. This has been true in the story of a woman named Christine Kane. For years, she served in the local church, and during that time, her heart broke for women and children who were victims of human trafficking all around the world. She herself was abused as a child, and so she was discouraged by the insufficient action and funding and attention being paid to human slavery. And so for years, she committed herself to intercessory prayer, to praying for that to cease and end. And then one day, after years of this intercessory prayer, she found her heart turned outward, and she and her husband decided to be an answer to their prayers, to do something about it, and they founded A21. Many of you may be familiar with A21 in this room. Over the last 15 years, they become one of the predominant global forces working to end slavery around the world. Thousands of women and children have been saved. That started with intercessory prayer with turning outward and praying for her neighbors, it changed her. It reoriented her heart, and it prompted her to become an answer to her prayer. So that's the first thing. It's an orientation intercession. It's not just a formula. But it doesn't stop there. We also learn from this psalm that our prayers of intercession should be God-trusting, not human-trusting. See, this psalm certainly prioritizes the success of the king, but it's really careful in how it articulates that success. 
See, it can be really easy when we pray or care for leaders or nations. It can be really easy to devolve into nationalistic rhetoric or political propaganda. It's really easy for that to happen for us. Suddenly, we start to place our trust and security in the hands of the leader or the nation or the ideology. And prayers and worship can quickly become king or party or nation worship. This happens all the time throughout history. It continues to happen in our day today. Just last year, there was a prominent church here in Phoenix, huge church here in Phoenix, that had an event called America Fest. At the event, Christian worship songs were sung oriented towards American flags on the stage and screen. Political speakers, not ministers or pastors, gave sermons about the importance of Christians taking over America, not serving and loving their enemies. And then, during the service, they prayed for the martyrs that day. And the martyrs they were talking about were the people who were imprisoned for the armed January 6th insurrection to overturn the 2020 election. This event may have used God language, but it was not longing for God's saving kingdom for all people and all nations. It's not where it was oriented. It was the worship of a particular human political ideology as the savior of America. And it elevated that ideology, not the character of the kingdom of Christ, as the true solution to human brokenness. It was human trusting, not God trusting. And that is exactly the opposite of what Psalm 20 is doing here. Look closely at this psalm. The theology here assumes that the king is not the savior, but the one in need of saving. It's not the Savior, but the one in need of saving. And the active party throughout this whole prayer is the Lord, not the King. Every line of the poem references the Lord and his character as the saving power, not the political leader and ideology. And this is made most explicitly clear in verse 7. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots and horses were the metaphorical representations in that day of strong nationalistic governmental power. Egyptian and Mesopotamian kings would represent themselves on chariots and horses to show their power and might. So to take pride in chariots and horses would mean to put trust in the nation or king themselves. And the psalmist explicitly refutes that idea. There's a a biblical scholar named James Mays who talks about this important point. Uh, He actually lived through World War II. And so he saw firsthand the danger of placing trust primarily in a party or an ideology or a person. He said this about Psalm 20. This way of praying was an antidote against a way of believing that vests power in a person to provide ultimate security and success. The king could not, in any separated and independent way, be the basis or content of trust. Or, as one of our great contemporary poets, Chance the Rapper, put it, leave your plans in man's hands and they'll get manhandled. (laughs) Psalm 20 is not a glorification of some king or party or nation. It's a prayer that God would bring his kingdom and life through those leaders. It's God-trusting, not human-trusting. And it's a reminder for us that when we pray intercession in our time and place, we have to become people who are actively trying to get in on what God is doing, not trying to use God to reinforce our agendas. And that, again, runs counter to our current culture. See, over the last couple hundred years, humans have developed this increasing trust in themselves to bring holistic life and peace and flourishing for all people. Historians have actually referred to the last few hundred years of Western history as a period of modernism. It's been a season of unprecedented human accomplishment, and therefore, it often leads humans to the assumption that their moral willpower, or their scientific advancement, or their human progress, or their political or social agenda can actually bring about lasting peace. And the peak of this way of modernistic thinking was the 20th century, which is when we accomplished world peace, right? 
by our human willpower, 20th century was the most peaceful that's ever happened, right? Not so much. The 20th century was actually the bloodiest in world history that we have on record. It included one world war and then another one. It included the usage of all our great and advanced human instincts and ingenuity to create weapons that for the first time ever could destroy everything. All of our human agendas, all of our institutions, all of the horses and chariots that we've put trust in have utterly failed to bring comprehensive life and peace to the world. We are people in need of something beyond ourselves. And intercession teaches us that posture. It takes the lower way. It assumes that we need God's help to bring about the world we're looking for. And so we pray for God's help to do so. Intercession teaches us not to pray for our own agenda, but to pray for God's. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And that kingdom, that will of God, by the way, is exactly what our hearts have deeply been longing for. That kingdom is sight for the blind. It's legs for the lame. It's streams in the desert. That is the healing of our broken ecology. It's comfort for the mourners. It's justice for the marginalized. It's the toppling of oppressive empires. It's forgiveness of all of our brokenness. It's every tear of grief wiped from our eyes. That's the kingdom. And if we want in on that project, intercession teaches us how. It teaches us to place all of the pain and all the grief and all the difficulty before God and get in on what God is doing to heal it. Intercession means to be God-trusting, not human-trusting. And finally, Psalm 20 teaches us that intercessory prayer is a difference maker. It's not just sentimentality. Remember the people praying these words. They were shaped and formed by the story that's contained within these scriptures. And that story, from the beginning, has always been about God and humanity's partnership to bring life and flourishing. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2, flashback. God creates all things good, and they work harmoniously together. The Hebrew idea of shalom captures the harmonious and comprehensive flourishing of the created order. And then humanity is put into that creation distinctly made in the image of God. And that's a phrase that we toss around a lot, but we don't really know what it would have meant to these people oftentimes in our own lives. There's a scholar named John Walton who does terrific work on what the image of God would have meant in that time. That language was royal language. It was used of kings and queens and rulers, and it primarily meant two things. First, to be made in the image of God meant that you were designed to work out the purposes of God in the world. So the one who bears the image is actually a partner or ambassador. They can actually make things happen alongside God. That's why Genesis says that they have dominion or rule or stewardship. The actions that humans take actually make a difference. They actually can change things, can cause things to happen. But then second, the image also had the capacity to become like the original. So the one who bears the image of God has the intrinsic capacity to grow into God's character, into God's personhood. So they not only are given real ability to change the world, but they're also given the ability to grow into people who change the world for love and joy and justice and peace. In the scriptural understanding of human nature, we are not just pawns that God is moving around. We are active participants in bringing life and flourishing to all things. We are difference makers. There's a great philosopher named Blaise Pascal who talks about this. He says, God has dignified humanity with causality. In other words, God has dignified humanity with the ability to cause things to happen. Our will, our behavior, and yes, our prayer actually causes change in the world. That's the fundamental assumption of the folks who prayed Psalm 20 and anyone else who prays all over the Bible. It's that human prayer is a fundamental part of partnering with God to bring life to the world. 
It's not just a sentimental spiritual practice. It makes a difference. And so when we intercede on behalf of others, we are actually using our God-given role of partnership to change things. We aren't just hoping. We are willing and moving the world to change. And God listens to those prayers and answers those prayers. The world does actually change because people pray. There's a, a pastor I know named Tyler. And he was recently at a church meeting with his wife when her phone started to go off in the church meeting. She didn't want to answer it right away, so she let it buzz, but it kept ringing over and over. Turns out it was her dad. So she left the meeting, answered the phone. And her dad, on the other line, his voice was quaking. He could barely get the words out. He said, the doctor just left the room. He's not going to make it. Just a few days earlier, her brother Van had been experiencing some burning in his chest. And he had just eaten some spicy Thai food. So a logical conclusion is a little bit of heartburn. But it stuck around over the last few days. It persisted. And so he went into a clinic looking for an antacid. And at the clinic, it turns out the chest pain was coming from a torn aorta going to his heart. His, that valve was gushing blood internally. And he was rushed to the hospital for immediate open heart surgery. And the doctor's report afterward was that he wasn't going to make it. And so Tyler and his wife, they left this church meeting, they rushed to the hospital as quickly as they could, and they arrived as their family was just getting new information. The doctor said that there was one second surgery that we could try as a last-ditch effort. And the surgery actually had a greater chance of killing him than saving him, but they had no other options. And so they entered in surgery. And while they did, Tyler prayed. And he brought all the emotion, all the fear and pain and grief he was feeling, and he talked with God about it. And he didn't know if it would work. He had all those questions as he prayed. And two days later, Van woke up in the hospital room after a successful surgery. But that's not the end of the story. That day, the lead surgeon walked into the room and wept in front of the family. He told them about a moment during the surgery when the surgical team had given up and declared Van deceased. But then a nursing student, who was only there to watch and hand them instruments, she began to pray aloud for Van in the hospital room. And immediately, when that happened, the surgeon, who had been searching for five hours for the tear he needed to repair, immediately found it and stitched it up and saved Van's life. And the surgeon, this well-trained, modernistic doctor, not Tyler, not the family, but the surgeon, used one word to describe this. A miracle. You guys, intercession works. It is the way we partner with God to bring life and flourishing to the world. And I know as soon as I tell that story, all of us have other stories that flood to mind with bad endings. Many of you in this room have prayed and prayed and prayed to no avail. And we're going to spend time talking about what we do with unanswered prayer. We're going to spend time in this series talking about what we do with the grief and lament of unanswered prayer. So stay tuned on that. But today, this morning, I want to remind you, God answers intercessory prayer. And oftentimes he does it in ways that we overlook or never see, never even think about. For instance, when you volunteer at Hope Women's Center because your heart breaks for the vulnerable and at-risk women here, you are a living answer to someone's intercessory prayer. Every time. When you bring a meal to the single mom with three kids working double shifts, you are a living answer to someone's intercessory prayer. When you remind your patients or your students or your clients that they are beloved by God and of infinite value, you are a living answer to someone's intercessory prayer. You tracking with me? Every day, God is answering intercessory prayers, whether we see them or not. And so we don't practice intercession because it gives us good feelings. We don't practice it because we're sentimental. We pray in this way because God has created every single one of us to be a difference maker in the world.
We pray in this way because we trust that God is bringing redemption and restoration to all things, and we want to get in on that work with God. We pray because it actually changes things. There's a theologian named Walter Wink who I think puts it beautifully. He says, intercessory prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Intercession visualizes an alternative future to the one apparently faded by the momentum of current forces. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. These shapers of the future are the intercessors. History belongs to the intercessors. History is shaped by the prayers. So this week, let's become people who pray. All of us, let's set aside 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening. You have that time. We all have that time. And let's consider where our hearts might be breaking alongside God's. Allow your heart to move you to prayer. Don't just get wallowed in grief or pain. Bring it to God and pray through it. Picture the faces, the lives, the bodies of the people for whom you pray. Remember always that in sincere love and care pictures faces, not masses or crowds. And let's become oriented towards those people in love and compassion in a world turned inward on itself. Let's become God-trusting people longing for redemption and restoration at every moment because the promise is clear. When we pray like this, we aren't just well-wishing. We are partners with divine love and grace and peace. We are difference makers in the world. So let's pray.